Srimate Bhaktivedanta Swami Nityanamane Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Pacharane Nirvasesa Sunivani Paskatyade Satane Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yutapadakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Panchakalpati Vishakri Sindhivita Kitanam Bhavanavya Vaishnavinamoha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's June 1st, 2020 in Hillsborough, North Carolina. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 10, Chapter 16. Krishna chastises the serpent Kaliya, Text 55. And today is also the disappearance day. Krishna. It's the disappearance day of Baladev Vijabhushan. It's the appearance day of Gangamata Goswamini. And it's Ganga Puja, which is the commemoration of when Ganga first came to earth. So we'll be speaking about that as well. Pratila Bendriya Prana Kaliya Shankakarharim Kaliya Sanakarharim Kritrat Samuchvasandina Krishnam Praha Kritanjali Patilabda, regaining, Indriya, the function of his senses, Pranaha, and his vital force, Kaliha, Kaliya, Shanakai, gradually, Hadim, to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Kritrat, with difficulty, Samuchvasan, breathing loudly, Dinaha, wretched, Krishnam, to Lord Krishna, Praha, spoke, Krita Anjali, in humble submission. The Anjali Mudra. Translation. Kaliya slowly regained his vital force and sensory functions, then breathing loudly and painfully. So he was in a lot of physical pain. One of our Acharya states said that's why he didn't offer dandavats. The wives of Kaliya offered dandavats, but he did because he was in too much pain. The poor serpent addressed Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, in humble submission. So this humble submission was displayed physically, with the Anjali Mudra. And there's no purport in the BBT edition. We're going to read Jiva Goswami's commentary. He spoke to the Lord who removes faults like pride, Harim. So Harim is a name for Krishna. That means one who takes away. He took away Kaliya's pride. 
He spoke to the Lord who removes faults like pride, Harim, to Krishna, since he was Swayam Bhagavan. He was miserable, Dinaha, because of his pain or because of his destroyed pride. Because he was in pain, he could not bow down on the ground like his wives, which is another one of the instances of women offering dandavats, by the way. It was Kaliya's wives. He spoke prahara in a special way that was proper for miserable people. What he would do in attributing his faults to the Lord would be done out of humility with dependence on the Lord. So here, Kali is taking a position of humility. Krishna accepted the surrender of Kaliya's wives, and because of that, he made the decision, got off Kaliya's hoods. Uh, but now it was up to Kaliya to become humbly surrendered. Prabhupada says we may get a lot of help on the ground, but we have to fly our own plane. So Kaliya also had... Now that now was on him. He got a chance, as Mara said the other day, that we can uh, get Krishna Prema by the grace of our relatives. Right? Krishna will say, oh, you're the descendant of Prahlad Maharaj, so I'm not going to kill you. But then it's up to us. We still have to surrender. We, we still have to want... Because it's, it's a question of our desire. Krishna is not going to force anything on us. Right? Sometimes the devotees say, why doesn't Krishna just force me to be Krishna conscious? And Prabhupada answered this. He says, this is the difference between love and rape. He said, not that Krishna puts a gun to your head and says, you know, you have to love me. That's Ravana's policy. Ravana says to Sita, if you don't love me, I'm going to eat you for breakfast. You know, this is, in many uh, religious systems or so-called religious systems on the planet today, uh, Maharaj's disciple Arjuna in New Zealand often makes this point in his preaching. They say that God is, is basically this really evil guy who says, you know, you have to surrender to me, you have to love me, or I'm going to make you suffer forever, and you have to get the philosophy just right, you've got to be in exactly the right denomination of the right religion, you know, be able to check off all of your beliefs perfectly and all of your actions perfectly, or you suffer suffer eternal damnation. And that's not Krishna's mood. Krishna wants our willing surrender. So some time ago I was trying to ascertain the difference between karuna bhav, the uh, stai bhav of compassion, and the daya vir bhav, under the category of chivalry, there's four subcategories, and one of them is also compassion. And in the Dayavir Bhav, Rupa Goswami gives an example of a king to whom Krishna came in disguise and said, uh, I want you to give me half of your body, sawed in half by your wife and son, as charity. And uh, the wife said, why can't I give my body? And Krishna says, no, I want it from your husband. Uh, so the husband agreed. But after he agreed, his left eye was crying. And then Krishna said, forget it, I won't take your body. Because you're crying. And this means that you're not willing to give your body willingly. I will only take a willing offering. And the wife said, no, his left eye is crying because I'm the left side of his body and you wouldn't take my offering. So I'm crying that I couldn't give myself to you. Amen. Nobody got sawed in half and had a, it had a happy, yeah, that was like, had a happy ending there. <laughs> uh, but what, what really struck me, 
from this particular story was that Krishna will not take an unwilling offering. He wants, it's not that Kali is just like, wow, you know, the guy's beating me up, I'm in terrible pain, I don't want to surrender, oh, I got to do it anyway, all right, I guess I'll surrender, but I don't like it. You know, I have to admit that I've done that many times. All right, Krishna, I surrender. Why do you have to be the transcendental autocrat anyway? Why can't this be a democracy? You know, but that's, that's not what Krishna's looking for. And we don't like that. Do we like that? Right? If we say to somebody, you know, I've, just like yesterday, Krishna Priya and Champakalata took me to the park, to the river walk. And, you know, I got invited. Do you want to come? And if I said, well, I don't really want to come, but, you know, just to make you happy. And they'd say, forget it. You know, stay home. So we want to also accept, I mean, unless we're out and out demons, we want to accept people's offerings that are done with actual love, with actual willingness, with actual surrender. And Kali is demonstrating his surrender, first of all, physically. So the Vandanam, which I'm, I'm just finished writing, a, making a multimedia and writing a class on Vandanam that I'm going to be presenting in Leicester, uh, is both verbal and physical, and of course also mental, with the mood of surrender. So Vandanam isn't just the prayers that one offers, but it's also exhibited physically. And we see in every religious and spiritual tradition that surrender is exhibited physically. You know, there's many churches where there's a, a padded bar near the floor so that during the service you can kneel on the floor. And there's people who take the same walk Jesus did with the cross and they'll be offering obeisances or dandavats as they're going on the walk. Of course, we stay at Govardhan and there people are regularly doing dandavats around Govardhan. Or dandavats around Radhakund Shamaka. Prabhupada says if you want to take bath in Radhakund, can you do dandavat parikrama like Raghunathaskal Swami? So this is the, the mood of surrender is exhibited in our physical behavior, whether it's the Anjali Mudra or whether it's the five-part obeisances or whether it's the eight-part dandavats. And the words that we use, um, there was such a, a nice discussion by uh, Aditya Narayan about the different parts, different verbal parts of prayers, you know, glorifying Krishna. I was so fascinated after his class that I thought, did Ujjara take the time to glorify Krishna before she asked to be saved? And she did. It was a fast prayer. She didn't take as much time as Arjuna with the Brahmastra. Uh, but she did also glorify the Lord. So Kali is taking this mood of submission. And we should note, uh, this will be brought out later by the next people giving classes, but we should note that our Acharyas say that Kali was in so much pain and so disoriented that not only did he not offer full dandavats like his wives, but just the Anjali Mudra, but he also just summarized their prayers. So he didn't really make up his own prayers. So this was a submission not only to the Lord, but also a submission to his wives, who were acting in one sense like a guru to him. Like Prabhupada says, usually the husband is the guru for the wife, but sometimes the wife can be the guru for the husband. So it was like that. So this was his surrender. So I wanted to look today at the, uh, the other days that we're celebrating today, also in terms of surrender. 
So we have, today is the disappearance day of Valadei Vidyabhushana, and Valadei Vidyabhushana is particularly noted in our Sampradaya for writing the Govindabhasya. So there was this challenge that why should the devotees be able to, the devotees of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu be able to worship the Govinda deity? Because they're not a bona fide Sampradaya. And uh, we in ISKCON get this kind of criticism also. You know, are you really bona fide? We had this booklet when Prabhupada was here, the Krishna Consciousness Movement is Authorized. You know, do we have an authorized Sampradaya? And there's many ways of showing that you're authorized. And one of them is that you have a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu didn't feel it necessary because he felt that the Bhagavatam was Srila Vyasadeva's natural commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. And because we accept the Bhagavatam, as Jiva Goswami explains in his Sandarbhas, as our primary scripture, therefore that's our commentary on Vedanta Sutra. Uh, but the local priests did not agree. They said, we don't accept this. Now, why didn't they accept that we were simply part of the Madhva Sampradaya? Because we have some significant philosophical differences with Madhvacharya. In fact, it's very interesting that uh, one of the things Baladev Vijibhushana wrote was a ten, ten statements of uh, a concise understanding of our Gaudiya Vaishnava Siddhanta. He stated our Siddhanta in a concise form, which is absolutely necessary if you're going to try to understand the meaning of scripture, and I don't have time to get into that today. When we do our hermeneutics course, we'll get into that. And Baladev Vijibhushana based his ten points of a concise statement of Siddhanta on the work of Vyastirta, who was an intimate disciple of Madhvacharya. Bhaktivinotakura later based his Dasmula Tattva on the work of Baladev Vijibhushana. But we have significant differences, even though Baladev Vijibhushana based his work on the work of Madhvacharya through Vyastirta, still we have significant differences. In fact, one could analyze that philosophically we're closer to Ramanujacharya than to Madhvacharya, although our line goes to Madhvacharya. And many of the modern-day followers of Madhvacharya argue with us uh, quite passionately that we really should not claim to be the Brahma Madhva Gaudiya Sampradaya because of these philosophical differences. And perhaps in another class we'll talk about the fact that one can have some differences in beliefs and still attain the perfection of life. Uh, you know, it's this, Prabhupada would often say, if you come to love of God through Christianity, then Christianity is perfect. Well, we have some pretty significant differences in philosophical beliefs with Christianity. But I mean, I was right there in the room when Prabhupada told my father, if through your religion you can know and love God, then it's perfect. Uh, but there's significant differences in beliefs and practices between the Gaudiya Vaishnavas and, and Judaism. Anyway, so Baladevi Dibhushan could have argued with the priest. He could have staged a protest. He could have argued. He could have said, you know, well, we follow Lord Chaitanya, and he said that we just accept the Bhagavatam. Why do I have to listen to you? But he took a role of submission and surrender. He said, all right, you're, the, you're in charge here. You're the authorities here. Therefore, I'm going to do what you ask. And... I know that this is not a popular stance in 2020, the idea of being submissive to authority. It really has a bad rap. You know, I mean, even in our ISKCON society, 
when I joined ISCON, I was really it was really emphasized that we should follow the GBC, that we should follow the temple president, that we should follow the temple commander, you know, that women should follow their husbands and par- and kids should follow their parents and students should follow their teachers. I mean, it was something that was, was very much part of the culture and you still see people growing up in places uh, like Indonesia and India and parts of China where they still feel this way, you know, that one should follow one's authority. In most of the, of the Western countries, this stance is very unpopular. And authority bashing is one of the main sports in the Western countries. You know, why should I follow any authority? I, I really, really like, a, it's a, a book written by a Christian woman called Fascinating Womanhood that we were, it was a clandestine book in the 70s when we were only allowed to read Shula Prabhupada's books. But we were all, you know, passing it around. And I really liked her point there that she said, the reason a woman should follow her husband is not because her husband is perfect. She might say, well, my husband can make mistakes. You know, you were asking the other day, why did Kalia's wives follow Kalia? Uh, but one follows one's husband not because one's husband is perfect. I think any married woman would say after a few weeks that my husband is not perfect. But to please the Lord, that the Lord is saying, please follow your authority, otherwise there's chaos in society. And unless we have a very severe situation, uh, that that should be adhered to. That one should only reject one's authority in very, very serious situations. And there may be consequences for rejecting your authority. When Bali rejected Sukracharya, there were consequences. He lost all of his opulences, at least for some time. One has to be prepared to accept those consequences there, and they're not insignificant. So Baladeva Jibhushan was surrendered to the authorities, even though they were wrong. Because we're not really surrendering to our immediate authority, we're really surrendering to God. That's like I heard Prabhupada say the other day, that I'm not your friend. He said, I am your friend in the sense that I am giving you Krishna as your friend. He said, I am not perfect, I am just a peon. You know, it's not that we're saying this other jiva is the same as God. We say, Shakshad Shastir. They're representing God. And we surrender to please Krishna. And then if there's some mistake on the part of the authority, I'm not talking about some big moral, I'm not saying if your authority tells you to rob a bank or kill somebody or burn down a house. But if there's some mistake on the part of your authority, God will be pleased. Yes, you are, you are following my direction and he will sort it out. And we see this with the Pandavas. I was watching the other day the disrobing of Draupadi in the Mahabharata video. And how the Pandava brothers followed Yudhisthira. I mean, that's astonishing. In 2020, nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. And Draupadi stayed with her husbands. Again, in 2020, nobody would do that. In 2020, you know, if Draupadi would divorce Yudhisthira, nobody would bat an eye. They'd say, yes, you know, that was really transgressed. But she didn't. She didn't. Like, that will not please Krishna if I do that. So in the same way the wives of Kaliya were submissive, in the same way, that should be the default value that I follow authority, even if I don't agree with the authority. If I only follow my authority when I agree, then I'm the authority. And we're not talking about major moral transgressions here. We're not talking about, again, you know, some criminal activity. That's another thing. If the authority tells you, you know, go rob a bank, or the authority is beating you up or something, raping you. That's, that's another category. 
But that's not generally the case. That's not usually what's happening when people, you know, criticize their authority and make a sport of criticism. And then nobody wants to take any position of responsibility. You know, as soon as you take your position of responsibility, people are going to disagree with you. That's just the way it is. And if it means that everybody thinks that they can go on the internet and, you know, blast you and because, because I disagree with you. And Baladevich Bouchon, though, was kind of in a pickle. What's he going to do now? He surrendered to the, to the local authorities, even though they were wrong. He said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do what you ask. And then he went to Krishna, because it's Krishna who's asking us to have peace and harmony in society and cooperate with authorities. So we're doing it to please him, not because our authorities are all perfect. And he said, Govinda, you save me. I'm, I'm acting the way that you want. And he was surrendered to Govinda, who said, don't worry, I'll dictate to you the basya. I'll dictate the commentary to you. And everyone will accept it. And therefore we call, uh, Baladeva Jibushan calls his commentary, Govinda Basya. That it's not, and of course, Srila Prabhupada talked about his books like this. That Krishna was dictating his books. All right, we want to look now at Gangamata Goswamini. Gangamata Goswamini was uh, born to royalty. She was born a princess. But she never had any interest in the world. She never had any interest in anything but Krishna Bhakti. And her parents wanted to arrange her marriage, which in a civilized society, the parents make sure their sons and daughters get married at an early age. Uh, so again, so there's stability in society. And she said, I want nothing to do with this. I want to marry Krishna. She refused. And her parents did not force, you know, sometimes we see people force. Uh, but their parents didn't force. They said, okay, we respect that you, you're a saintly person. Huh? And then they died. She was their only child, and she became the queen. You know, sometimes we have this view of Indian society and women leadership. Uh, but she became the queen. But she didn't like being the queen, which reminds us of uh, Gopal Kumar in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita. He kept taking positions of administration and royalty, and then he kept saying, oh, this is disturbing my bhajan, and he would give them up. So that's what happened with her. She became the queen, and then she's like, this is disturbing my bhajan. She turned over the kingdom to other relatives, and then uh, she decided to take full shelter of Krishna. So her name at that time was Sachi, and she met Haridas Pandit, who was a devotee of Gornitai and a disciple of Ananta Acharya. And she uh, fell, she gave dandabats to Haridas, and she played, please give me refuge. So we see, even though she's a, a queen, she's offering dandavats at the lotus feet of her guru. She's surrendering. We have this mood of surrender. She doesn't just come in, you know, I'm a powerful, intelligent, capable person. And then Aridas tested her. He said, you know, I don't know if you can do bhajan in Vrindavan. You're used to queenly opulence. It reminds me a little bit of when Ram said to Sita that, you know, I don't know if you can go to the forest. You've always gone out. If you go out in public, you go on a palanquin. You know, you haven't walked on the ground and you're going to be wearing bark clothing. And she said, no, I'll, I'll walk and I'll, with my feet, I'll crush any thorns beneath my feet for you. And he said, why don't you go back home, do bhajan at your own house? This reminds us of Narada and Dhruva, where, where Narada says, ah, you know, you're a child, you're going to go to the forest and do austerities, go home, wait till you grow up. So that's what he said to her. And uh, she understood that this was a test. Now, so here we have an example of seemingly disobedience to the authority. 
where the disciple is not, as Mara's mentioned the other day, the disciple is not to be a blind follower. The disciple has to understand the desire and the intent of the authority. Oh, they're testing my determination. We spoke about this yesterday morning in Argentina, which is cool how we can fly all over the world like that, about you know, obstacles and tests and how, you know, when do we know that Krishna is testing us and when do we know that he's telling us to take another route. So uh, she just continued doing her bhajana. She gave up, after a while, she gradually gave up her costly garments and she gradually gave up her jewelry. So it's interesting she did this gradually. In the taking of sannyas, for example, there's four stages of sannyas. Uh, so that renunciation can also be taken up gradually. Uh, so then Haridas said to her, if you can give up your sense of pride, dignity, and fear. So this is, we have this theme of giving up pride. Go out in Vraja with a begging bowl, then only will you get divine grace. So I don't know if all of us can, can really relate to this, but just like when, when we were having our meeting in Washington, D.C. with the BBT about Prabhupada's books and the editing, and we were talking about the fact that the posthumous edition makes a statement that it's an edition of greater richness and authenticity than the books that were published in Prabhupada's presence. That's right there in the note to the second edition in the printed volume, which is it's saying that the books that Prabhupada produced had less richness and less authenticity. So uh, when we were discussing that in the meeting, I actually got a little... I was, I was making a presentation and a flip chart, and I, I got a little emotional. And I, I sat down and I said, you know, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, I was going out in the airports, O'Hare airports, I was going out in, the, in Chicago, I was going out in the New York subway, panhandling Srila Prabhupada's books. And it turned out I was the only one in the room who had done that. Even my godbrothers who were in the room, I was the only woman in the meeting, but my godbrothers who were in the meeting had never done that. And I said, I don't know if you understand. I said, I came from a very wealthy and very aristocratic family. And for me to go out in the subways panhandling was a very big deal for me. And it was a very big deal for my parents, especially my mother. You know, she was completely scandalized by that. And it took her 10 years to accept that I was in the Hare Krishna movement because of that. You know, my daughter doesn't go panhandling in, in the subways and in the airports. You know, we think about Maharaj Prajaparudra, who was the king of Puri, and he was sweeping the street. And again, maybe to us, it's like, yeah, he's sweeping the street. But for the king to sweep the street, it was a huge deal. You know, what I said at that meeting is, you know, I, I didn't do that for something that wasn't authentic. You know, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to alienate my mother and basically embarrass my whole family for something that wasn't authentic. So th this was a big deal for, at that time, she was called Sachi to do this. And, you know, when you're out begging, you may or may not get food. You may or may not get a lot of food. She became very weak. She became very thin. But she kept doing that. She'd every day bathe in the Yamuna, clean the temple yard, do parikrama, attend Artik. And then Haridas became very pleased with her. And he said, even though you're a princess, 
your sacrifice and humility have pleased me. Now I will give you Diksha. So he gave her mantra Diksha. And he put her under the care of Lakshmi Priya, another one of his disciples who was very austere. And they did austerities at uh, Manasapavanagat, which is right by Shamakund. And one can still go there. There is where Krishna Das Kaviraj wrote the Chaitanya Charitamrita. That's where Raghunath Das Goswami has his bhajan kutir. And every afternoon, Raghunath Das Goswami would meet with Krishna Das Kaviraj for about three or four hours and discuss the pastimes of Mahaprabhu from where Krishna Das Kaviraj got the Majalila and the Anchalila. That's where the Pilu tree is, who is said to have spoken the Leelas to Vishnu Chakravati Thakur, who also has his Bhajan Kutir. That's where Srimati Radharani and her friends bathe at noon every day, and where she says that anyone who bathes there during that time of day will get love for Krishna like she has. It's right by the Sangram between Shamakund and, and Radhakund, so uh, uh, Anyway, right now the place is a mess because there's conflict going on. But that, that's where she had, there's a whole temple there with Govardhan Shilas and its cows where Gangamata Goswami did her bhajan. And uh, then he told her to move to Jagannath Puri and to become a preacher. So after she completed her bhajan, so she went to Jagannath Puri and she did her bhajan in the house of Sarabhama uh, Bhattacharya. And... Uh, there was a Damodar Shalagram there, which she worshipped. So she became uh, known as a Bhagavatam speaker, and all of the learned pandits would come to hear her Bhagavatam class. So this concept that in traditional India, women didn't get Bhagavatam classes, and men wouldn't go to hear the Bhagavatam classes, I, you know, it's like you really wonder if people read history. And this was going on in a very traditional society, much more traditional than what's going on today. Um, So one day the Maharaja Puri was very impressed. He was coming to her Bhagavatam class and he said, I want to offer you something. And then Lord Jagannath came in a dream and told the Maharaj that he should take Diksha from Ganga Mata Goswami, which he did. So he became her initiated disciple, as did many of the other uh, dignitaries in Jagannath Puri. Now, this story is related to Ganga Puja, which we're going to talk about just for like three minutes, I guess. So on Ganga Puja, she wanted to bathe in the Ganga. But at the same time, uh, she said, well, my guru told me to live in Puri. So this was also her surrender. You know, I want to bathe in the Ganga, but my guru told me to live in Puri. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm going I'm to follow my guru's order. So that light night, Lord Jagannath came to her and said, don't worry, on that day the Ganga will come to you. So... <laughs> The Ganga came to her and carried her into the inner locked area of the Jagannath Puri temple. Now, when she went there, she heard and saw many other personalities engaged in kirtan, whom she joined. But in the morning, it was a locked area, so she didn't get out. In the morning, she was the only one there. And when the priests found her in this area, they arrested her. They said, you've come into this locked area to steal the jewels of the deity. And they threw her in prison. And also her humility and her surrender was that she didn't fight this. She, she, didn't, she didn't protest that I've been arrested unfairly, I've been imprisoned un, unfairly. Uh, but she simply went on with her bhajan in prison. And then it was Jagannath who appeared to the king in a dream and said, get her out of prison. And 
you know, this was her, her mood of humility and surrender. Then we want to look a little bit of, of, of Ganga. This is the day Ganga came to earth. That's a very, very long story. That's in the ninth canto of Bhagavatam. The ninth canto of Bhagavatam is where there's a lot of very unusual stories and not a lot of Acharya's commentaries. So here we have Maharaj Sagara. Maharaj Sagara was born after the death of his father, and he was born along with poison. Uh, so that's why he's called Sagara. And uh, Maharaj Sagara and the Order of the Lord was performing horse sacrifices. But Indra stole the horse. You know, we have this kind of sometimes envious competition that Indra stole the horse. Now, Maharaj Sagara had two wives, and one of his wives had 60,000 children. Please don't ask me about that because I can't give you any kind of answer as to how that's possible to have 60,000 children. I have no idea. Anyway, one of his wives had 60,000 children and one wife had one child. And in other Puranas, it says the two wives were asked by a sage, you know, who wants to have a child that will continue the dynasty but you only get one? And who wants to have 60,000 children who will not continue the dynasty? And each wife was happy with what she got. Anyway, the 60,000 children said that we're going to go find the horse that Indra stole. And in doing so, they dug into the earth and they created the basins that became the oceans, which is why the oceans are called Sagara. They found the horse at the ashram of Kapila and jumping to conclusions, which is never a very good idea, jumping to conclusions without due process, they said, ah, the thief! And their offense to, Kap- to Kapila burned up their bodies, spontaneous human combustion, and they became a bunch of ashes. And that. then uh, the other son of Sagara, by his other wife, is... Um, yeah, by Keshari. 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 Sumati and Keshari. So he was, what's his name? Asamanjasa. So Asamanjasa had been a mystic yogi in his previous life, and due to an offense, he had to take birth again. And kind of like Jud Bharata, he didn't want to get entangled again. But the way he didn't get entangled again is he acted like a demon, and he killed his friends. So his father banished him from the kingdom, at which point he said, actually, I'm a great mystic yogi, brought all the kids back to life, and then the king was sorry. But he had had a son, Amsuman. So Amsuman went to find this horse. He went to Kapila's ashram. He apologized to Kapila. Again, we have this surrender and submission. Kapila gave him the horse and said, it's only when the Ganga comes. So Amsuman did austerities for the Ganga to come, and he died, and it didn't work. This is also humility and surrender. You know, I may do my service and not have anything to show for it. And then he had a son, Dilipa. Dilipa continued his father's program of austerities for the Ganga to come, and again it didn't work. And then he had a son, Bhagirata. He continued the austerities, and then Ganga came. And Ganga also was humble and surrendered. She said, I don't want to just come to earth. I'll cause trouble. I'll break the earth. He said, I have to have the shelter. I have to have some strong man to shelter me. And so Bhagavat said, then I will ask Lord Shiva to be your shelter. And Lord Shiva carried her on his head. Uh, and then the Ganga eventually came. Of course, she was swallowed by Janu and then came out of Janu's ear, which is why she's called the Janavi. And she came and she 
wash the ashes of the 60,000 sons of Sagara who then went to the heavenly planets. So we see here that this submission of Kaliya is a recurring theme because without submission, without surrender, without humility, there's no relationship. Not between anybody. What to speak of us and the Lord when we are the offenders and he is all great. So we have, according to my watch, four minutes. Yes, Maharaj. I think it's important to make a distinction between the hierarchy of authorities. Because if you say that the parents are the authorities of the child, children are absolute authorities, then... I didn't say absolute, but... We went, well, even the child should follow the parents, we wouldn't have any Krishna conscious movement right now. Oh, I like this point you're making. And this point you're making is how I understand Bhagavad Gita 9.30 where Krishna says, even if you perform an abominable action, if you're my devotee, you're still considered saintly. So when I wanted to join the Krishna consciousness movement, my father gave me all blessings and my mother gave me only trouble. You know, my mother was really heavy. Don't join this movement. It took her 10 years to accept that I was a devotee. And I rebelled against my mother to surrender to Krishna. But this rebellion against my mother uh, dharmically is an abominable activity. To rebel against one's mother, I was, I was just, I just turned 18. You know, I was under my, the protection of my parents, to leave the protection of my parents, rebel against my mother, to join the movement. By, dharmically, that, that actually was abominable. So, yes, in the, in the service of surrendering to Krishna, we can do something that is normally dharmically abominable. But we should make sure it's in the service of surrendering to Krishna. We shouldn't do something dharmically abominable for our own sense gratification. Then society is finished. You know, for a higher principle, yes, but, you know, make sure we don't use higher principles as excuses. Like, like Arjuna was trying to use, Prabhupada says, Krishna consciousness as an excuse not to surrender to Krishna. So I think, you know, Krishna also wants some stability in society. But yes, I'm very glad I rebelled against my mother, and I'm very glad that I, I violated ordinary dharma and said, too bad, mother. I'm moving into the Hare Krishna temple. And eventually she accepted it. Eventually she, eventually she said, you know, yeah, this is, this is a good thing. I'm glad that you did this. It just, it just took her a long, a long time. No, the only absolute authority we should have is God. You know, that's it. No, nobody else is the absolute authority. Is that all right? Yeah, that's all right. Is that all right for an answer? And why, why did the Brahmins also read the Brahmanis rejected their husbands. The wives of the Brahmanis, the wives of the Brahmanis rejected their husbands. But then they, Krishna they told them even, to go they back. They didn't respond to their husbands and said, where are you going? That's right. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.